three, two. Well, I am thrilled to have uh, Mark Noguchi here with me. Mark, am I saying your name right? Yes. Okay, good. I, I have, um, uh, I'll say known Mark. I first encountered Mark several years ago at a Marin Interfaith Council event. I think it was at Green Gulch, but I'm not entirely sure. Yes. But I remember we spoke some about your uh, experiences and practices in Buddhism. Uh, and I thought it would be an interesting conversation to share with my community, not only because of that, because we have many people at Westminster who are inter interested in, in other faiths and other traditions, but because I know that your story weaves through more than one tradition. And I'm going to let you tell that, because I think that will be interesting to folks, because I know a lot of my people, a lot of the people with whom I share religious community, are interested beyond simply the Christian or Presbyterian tradition. Uh, but maybe before we get right into that, uh, we could even take a step back and you could tell us a little bit of your story and your family history and, and kind of how you got to be where you are. So with that, I'll just say welcome and uh, invite you to share a little bit about your background with us. Okay, I could get very lengthy, but I'll try not to. <laughs> I know the feeling. Yeah. Like people know what happens when I get lengthy. <laughs> <laughs> when you get older too, you have a lot of experience behind you. Uh, I think when you get to this part of your life, I'm in my, I'm in my 60s, uh, and you grow up in a place like Marin, and, which, and you're always a little bit different, you're, you're almost forced to look at yourself compared to the greater whole. So the greater whole is mostly affluent white people. Then you look at how, how am I different, and how did I come with my views? And when you hear other people espousing their views, you go, wow, well, I wonder where that came from, because that's sort of not my point of view here. And so... So I think for me, I really thought a lot about who I am as a Japanese American Buddhist. And so when I went, and here's an example. So I, I study with my, my Jewish friends. And when it comes to that time of the year where it's called the Yul and uh, High Holy Days, one of the, one of the guys, uh, my Jewish friend says, Mark, um, do you, do you people? <laughs> you know, he's kind of saying, like, do you Buddhists <clears throat> do anything similar to atoning for your sins to God? And I always have to go, oh, well, you know, you know, I don't want to insult anybody, but I just said, well, you know, we don't really emphasize God and we don't really talk about sin and we don't have the sense that we need to apologize to God. But that doesn't mean we don't have a moral compass that, you know, we, we, the non-harming non is a really important part of the Buddhist path. I guess what I'm trying to tell you, Rob, is that you are reminded quite often of being a little bit of an outlier and get used to explaining yourself. Interesting. Uh, huh? Oh, I just said that it's interesting because it's not a reality that I have because in almost everywhere I've been, I've been the insider. I don't have that experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So at some point, you know, I, I, I'm not really insulted. I just kind of go, okay, you're curious. I always think you want the short story, the long story. So anyway, the, so the, the, the story that I kind of told you, Rob, in my short bio is that my grandparents came from Japan. And I always say just like the Italian grandparents and the Irish grandparents, all the different immigrants that came in the turn of the century, and what they brought with them, and I'll use the, let's say the Italians as an example. So they brought their Italian culture, their Italian personalities, their Catholicism, probably. And that kind of percolates into the, into the family, just as much as the Japanese sensibility, so to speak, and the Buddhist teachings filter into the kids, so that by the time you get to third generation, I'm watching baseball, I'm as American as the third generation Italian American, but they went home to their grandma and the grandma maybe speaks a little bit of English, but maybe mostly Italian, cooks Italian food. And they've got the Catholic 
you know, the, that, that faith is part of sort of, you know, even if you don't go to church, it's still part of, of your makeup. So my, like my Catholic friends would, would talk about mass and, you know, the Virgin Mary. And those are things that I didn't know anything about. And so the Buddhism is sort of there in ways that you don't have confession. And I can think of all these things we didn't have to do. So, um, so yes, yeah, so Mike, so my grandparents on both sides came to this country by the turn of the century. And then the fast forward, then the internment camps happened. And, and most people, it's surprising, some people don't get it. But during World War II, you know, all these, all the Japanese were rounded up for a lot of reasons that were rationalized. And I think that really left um, a lasting scar on who they were. And, and, and for, if you do know uh, anybody, any Japanese Americans, that generation didn't talk about it. We, we, we didn't learn as kids. And we'd say, oh, this is the Nakamura. I was like, oh, hi. And then the little kid, and they said, we met them in camps. And we'd go, when did you guys go camping? <laughs> and they would not, but they'd say that you'll, you're too young to understand. But they still wouldn't talk about it. And I've heard this story told in many, many families that the, that generation did just not want to talk about it. Again, that's another that's another level of conversation, Rob, that I could tell about. Some other. Well, yeah, I'm wondering. I mean, it's a naive question, but I'm, I, I just don't know. Uh, why do you think they didn't talk about it? Well, again, Rob, I don't. I, you know, when I always say I'm speaking about my own experience and my own knowledge, there's a lot of other Japanese Americans that may have some ideas. And, um, I think in the case of my dad, uh, you know, I don't think he wanted to bring up things that would then create anger. Because then you go, why, why get bitter and bring up things that are the past, right? I mean, we can learn from the past, but why bring up things? Because it, it, well, you know, it, doesn't, it doesn't solve any purpose. You know, it, just, it just makes you angry. And as you probably know from little Buddhism that you do know about, is that holding on to things like anger, disappointment, jealousy, all those things, those are the emotional mind states that really kind of can just eat you up. And so I think in many ways, he would just, you know, it's not like denying it, but maybe when you get older, and when he got older, he told me, you know, maybe I was in my 50s, <laughs> tell me more about how he resented the experience. And, and but, he, but again, it didn't dwell on it. And, and again, you, it's just, just different personalities. I asked my mom when she was in, in nursing care, and she was a little bit, little bit, well, she had a little bit of dementia, but she was still able to have cognizant conversation. I said, Mom, I have never, ever asked you this question. I said, are you at all angry about what happened during the war? And I swear you had to be there. She just goes, well, you know, it's just what we had to do at the time. And um, I learned secretarial. I made really good friends that are still my friends today. And I, and I said, and you're not angry at all. <laughs> and she goes, well, what would be the point? And I looked wow. at her and I just thought, wow. I said, you know, she really sort of embodies really like a, a spiritual person. You know, I almost felt like bowing to her then. But I just, she was that way in the world. She had made all kinds of friends and she wasn't, she didn't have like, she wasn't racist. She just like, she, she loved everybody. And so, I, so they didn't personality wise, you know, there's just some people that endured things. And then there's some people that are just, they're going to be angry about everything. And uh, I think because my dad was the oldest of his family, they're like eight brothers and sisters. He was like in his early twenties. He's old enough to kind of say, "This is pretty. This is a pretty bad deal." Yeah, yeah. Uh, but but then again, moving forward, I guess I fast fast forward here is that I think because and I think I wrote you this in the bio because of that experience. I think his response was, "I'm going to raise my kids, and I'm not going to I'm not going to inculcate them with racist ideas. I'm not going to talk badly about 
Catholics or Jews or people of other faith traditions. And then he was an engineer. And so he worked with people all over the world. So when I, when I, when I uh, cleaned his house up, I found books on Muhammad and uh, the Holy Bible, which I still use when I go to Bible study. I mean, he read, he read the Bible, had parts underlined. So I guess as you're smiling at Rob, I'm thinking, as I went into the Marine Interfaith Council, my wife would just sort of smile and say, you're just like your dad. It's in your DNA. So that, that's what I was going to say. So it's really in your biography. I mean, I to sort of spill some of the things, you know, uh, you went on to become the chair of the board of the Marine Interfaith Council. I know you have. Um, I'm on the board. Yeah. Some and you're still on the board, and I know you've um, you've been in Christian communities. I know you go to Torah study right yeah. now. So, but this did this wasn't this started with your your family of origin, with your your parents bringing you up intentionally with some of those sensibilities. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I would say so. And, and you know, I always like to tell this story because you know, as we're talking now, it's very topical about race relationships and, and the way people pigeonhole people and put them into categories. I still remember going to uh, UC Davis and my and my college dorm mate. He goes, he goes, Mark, Mark. He goes, I need to talk to you. He goes, I know who the Jew haters are in the dorm, and I'm, and I'm going, okay. And then Ted starts telling me Susan and Bob and blah blah, blah and he has a list of like ten people, and I went, okay. So, are you like a Jewish person? Because <laughs> right? I'm thinking like. If you're, if you're telling me who Jew is, I'm, I'm thinking, I said, and he looks at me like, I'm supposed to know he's Jewish. And I just said, I said, Ted, you look like a typical white guy that I went to school with. I mean, I, I just see you as Ted with the bicycle that has insanely sleeps in the sleeping bag on the top bunk and has a window open. And I think we just, it was a short conversation, but I said, Ted, you know, I don't go through life thinking like, you're like a Jewish guy. I mean, it's easier for me to tell, oh, there's like, two other Asians in this in this dorm because the Asians are easy to pick out and there's a black guy. But otherwise everyone else to me is like a big sea of white people. And and I and I always remember that with that his smile is I thought, wow, I guess I guess people go through life and they say he's he's Jewish. Yeah. And I'm thinking like what's the difference? And and the same thing with um, like I said, different faith traditions is that when I this is another aside, but it's kind of related when I was growing up. Some, I still remember this. I was in elementary school or something, and something somebody said something about the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, and I just go, "What's the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost?" Because <laughs> I don't, yeah, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not. I was raised in that tradition. This was and, in, in public school, right? Yeah, public school. And and this little girl again, it's just her response. She goes, "You don't know about the Holy Trinity," and I went, "I don't." And she goes, "Don't you go to church?" And I go, "Yes." And she goes, "Where do you go to church?" I said, "I go." To, I'm, I'm, I'm going like this. I go to a Buddhist church. And she goes, Buddhist church? Do you pray to Buddha? And I'm going like, no. And I remember I just I just slithered away, totally embarrassed, and feeling ashamed that I wasn't a Christian. And then as years later, you know, when I when I was I'm an adult now, I'm just thinking, that's not how Buddhists are raised. You're not raised to think that you've got this, you've got the answer, and you're gonna tell the world to, you know, come be Buddhists, right? That's so arrogant. So again, over the years, Rob, I've kind of gone, when you grow up like that, then I can understand these legislators that, you know, bang, you know, the gavel. And they say, we're going to have prayer in school and da 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 I'm going like, well, where do you come from with that? What, where's this tolerance for other ways of being in the world? Which is how I was raised. Which I guess what I would say, Rob, is, is why when I first found out about the Interfaith Council, so immediately drawn to it because I'm just thinking, 
I want to know about the other faith traditions. There are other ways to be in this world. I married a Christian, and I, she goes to church. I mean, the 38 years, at some point, <laughs> you realize you have to get along with each other. And then I started going to Bible study because I wanted to find out. I really didn't know much about the Bible, except I watched how people would take the Bible, twist it around, and say, well, here's some readings that say that's why gays are being punished. And I'm going, whoa, I think something's being really warped here. So I almost went to Bible study just because I wanted to have an argument with those narrow-minded Christians about how they were warping the narrative. And then as it would turn out, I meet this rabbi uh, by chance who's visiting and would have Shalom. I'm going, you know, I really don't know much about Judaism. I know they don't have the Jesus Christ narrative, but I know that they study what they call the Torah. So I met this rabbi and she was speaking about the, the Jewish holidays and her, her uh, explanation from her perspective. And I went, wow, this is really fascinating. And, and this is Rabbi Alana at Road of Shalom, right? Well, no, well, this was a visiting rabbi. From oh, I see, I see. So I was, I was intrigued because this was like the second annual rabbi in residence. I said, okay, this has got to be an important person. And, it, and so, so again, if you have an open mind, I'm thinking like, okay, I don't see a whole lot of black, Hispanic, or Asian people at the, in this audience, but I want to go to this. And then Rabbi Stacy sees me later on. I said, I said, Rabbi, I just loved this. And she said, Come to Torah study. Uh, anyway, but, but then I have to tell you, you know, I, I felt a little self-conscious at first going because I just thought, you know, this is this is for Jewish people, and maybe yeah. they don't want outsiders. You know, maybe this is their place where they can be with Jewish community, where you know they've had a lot of bad stuff happening in their history. So I don't want to intrude on their space. Sure. But as the as the you know years go by, pretty soon Noguchi becomes more a regular and then as i as you know i mean i meet rabbi alana and she's totally into this interfaith uh, yeah know, everything as i hear you talk what i hear is you moving through the world with kind of an ethos of curiosity yes. so rather than saying i'm going to go and equip myself to battle everybody or be afraid of everybody so defend myself even if the threat is often imaginary you you sort of go around the world saying, oh, that sounds interesting. Let me learn about that. Ooh, this is intriguing. I don't know much. I, I want to go find out. Great. How how did that curiosity set in, and 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 how do we invite people into that? Because it seems like such a more fruitful way to move through the world. Yeah, you know, it, it it's got to be a little bit of DNA. Like it's just part of who I am. Like when my when my friend Gerald, who I grew up with, and I'll tell you a story about him. He's also Japanese-American, and, and, uh, and Kay, my wife, the Presbyterian, tells Gerald, Mark's going to you know, Jewish studies in the temple. And Gerald just goes, yeah, that's Mark. You know, he's always been kind of a curious guy. So I think I've always kind of been that way. But again, the other part, and I really think it's deeply seated, having been on the outside, I mean, and I always tell people, you know, people now call, oh, Dalai Lama, blah, 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 Buddhism is really cool. And I say, no, 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 no. You, you go back to the 50s. And where the majority of people you're with are white, and you know you already you already had your parents that were in camps, then they come out, and, you know they're told like keep a low profile. White people don't like us. You certainly don't, you know, run out there with a big big flag saying, "Hey, I'm a Buddhist too." You guys like right. that? It's it's so, easy for some of us who only come to this area recently to to uh, to think that it's always been a, a cool and a fad and the, yeah, yeah, no, 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 no. You yeah. you you kept the lid on things. And, and, and I think because of that, you know, when you come from that kind of a tradition, then you kind of go, okay, well, there are those people quietly doing the corner there, you know, so maybe I should 
you actually find out, you know, what their wisdom teachings are about. Yeah. And so I remember, so back, back in my first day of tour study, I've already got little beads of sweat because I'm like, what am I doing here? I have no idea what, what I'm reading either, right? And then this guy, Mark, goes, so Marco, what, what brings you to tour study? And I went, uh, well, the long story or the short story? And he goes, the short story is fine. <laughs> so I said, I said, well, you know, it's intriguing to me as a Buddhist to see all these white people, you know, that, that come to Spirit Rock and they're, they're doing these chantings and all this. I'm thinking like, okay, this was not, you know, when I was growing up, like everyone's like, you look, you look back and you see some odd, unusual white guy in the temple. So I, I just said, long story short, is that if, if, if other people from other traditions can find something from Buddhism, right, to add to their belief system, then why can't I as a Buddhist maybe find some wisdom teachings in Judaism. Marv goes, eh, good, answer. <laughs> good answer. So wow. that's, that's um, you know, I, that's what I would say is that, and then lucky for me is that uh, here in Marin County, that our, our, our places of worship are so progressive. So as you probably know with the Rabbi Alana and Stacy, you know, they're very, they're very involved in the Interfaith Council. Yeah. And so they're very open to having, like their mission statement probably says something about interfaith marriages and things like this. Well, I wonder though if, if Buddhism lends itself maybe more than my tradition to um, taking that approach that you described as finding what could be added to your practice from other traditions. I mean, yeah. I think that way of being is very much in line with an evolved way of being religious in, in whatever religion or certainly within my own. But I think so many people, even people who come to a church like Westminster, want to do that. They want to go and find what, what, what particular gifts other traditions have to offer and add that to their own journey, but sort of secretly feel like they're not supposed to, that they might get in trouble if they do that. Because Christianity carries this baggage of our way is the only way. And it's very hard for people to slough that off. Yeah, I think, I think you're onto something. It's, it's easier to be a Buddhist and then put your tendrils into other things because, um, you know, as you know, no, Buddhism is based on the teachings of the Buddha, who is who is never pretended to be anything but a human being. I mean, he achieved a state of enlightenment that very few people can reach. But he said, "You too can get there." But there wasn't a sense that he did miracles. That you know, so you read. I'm sorry, but you know, the water into wine and yeah, miracles that Jesus did. I mean, he didn't do that. And so there's so there's no really strict sense of saying. This is Buddhism. These are the rules. And you can't step outside these boundaries. I mean, unless maybe you're a monk. Yeah. Um, but otherwise, because of that, I call it the squishy religion because there's no right or wrongness to it. So, so because Buddhism teaches non-attachment to ideas, right? You can read Thich Nhat Hanh's precepts. He's a Vietnamese Buddhist. But he says, don't be deeply attached to this dogma, even Buddhist ones, because that creates suffering. So if you, if you already start from a faith tradition that says, look, take it, take it or leave it, but don't believe everything you hear. Don't believe that teacher. Just find the right teacher and stick with it. And if it's time to move on, move on. And if you were to have a Zen Buddhist and another kind of Buddhist argue about who's right, both of them would probably say no right or wrongness, right? Wow. So, the, so the Zen people do the Zen thing and then the Vipassana people do the other thing. But I don't think any, any of them would say, I have a better path because that's that's not Buddhism because then you would say you're attached to your form of Buddhism. Does that make sense, Rob? Yeah, sure. And it's so funny when you contrast it to our history, which is filled with contests of who's right and who's right to the exclusive wrongness of the other. I mean, that's not everybody yeah. in our tradition, yeah. but we have yeah. a 
long legacy of that. And your point about Jesus is well taken, but it's also points to something that's tragic because even though there are moments where Jesus is, uh, seems to be exceptional, there are also moments in our texts where Jesus says, you're going, you can do this too and more. But we have taken those pieces and suppressed them and made him exclusively the other. And in doing so, I think we've actually um, kept people uh, separate and kept people from fulfilling who they could be because we've, we've put him on such a pedestal that he's only other. One, one of the teachers I follow is a man named Philip Newell, and he's a, a sort of a Celtic spirituality uh, teacher. And he says, you know, in, in American, or he's British, uh, Western, you know, white culture, we make Jesus as other as possible. But he said, not everybody's like that. He said, you go to South America or Central America, and, and you'll find people named Jesus or Jesus all the time. In fact, our sexton at Westminster is named Jesus. But white culture wouldn't dare name a child Jesus because Jesus is so above, is so other. And he said, isn't the other way such a healthier relationship with Jesus? And I thought, wow, what an, what an insight. We've made him so other that we couldn't dare come near so we don't try. We, we settle for worshiping him rather than following him or uh, attending to his teachings or trying to embody them ourselves. Now, you, you've talked um, a number of times already today about being in rooms where most people are white. And I can't imagine what going through the world would be like to be the person in the room who doesn't look like many of the people in the room. And I've heard you talk before about scanning the room. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience? Well, okay. <laughs> I'm laughing because you have to have some levity in all this. Um, I think it, you know, I think, I think guys are kind of dense, you know, we're just, <laughs> <laughs> charged. I can think, I think my sisters are more attuned to this than I was, but I think when I was a little kid, I just would just blend in. I just played with all my friends and, and you know, did all things that we did as kids. And then I haven't told the story for so long, but then one day, I, I think it was junior high school or maybe, maybe sixth grade or something around that time. And then the teacher goes, you must be the Noguchi. Uh, kid or something like that and I went wow yeah you're right and then I went I kind of go oh you're the only like Asian person here then I then I remember that was like a little a shift because I realized I went, oh wow you know I, that's why they know who I am because they say well you must be Bonnie's brother so then I kind of go well you're going to stick out and then you're reminding me that when I was in junior high school I thought I got in trouble with the police explosives or something just doing mischievous things, but I just thought, you know, even I remember this now, I, I thought, you know, there's so few of us, I have a reputation. If I get in trouble with the police or do things like that, this is also a Japanese thing. I will, I will, I will shame my community because uh -huh. then the white people will look at that behavior of mine and say, look at those Japanese. Now they're, they're, they're misbehaved kids and all this kind of business. So. But isn't that an enormous amount of pressure? I mean, if, if when I'm in trouble or was in trouble as a younger person, I never it never occurred to me that that um, I'm carrying a whole like people with me. Maybe my family, maybe. But I would never cross my mind that somehow I'm bringing shame upon a whole group of people. That's an enormous weight to. Uh, yeah, I mean, yes and no. I mean, part of. Um, the Japanese philosophy too is that if you if you get in trouble, it's not just you. You are, you are now shaming the entire family. That's kind of the Japanese thing. 
But even as I tell you this story, Rob, it was a little blip, you know, it wasn't stuffing, stuff I carried all the time. But it is one of those things where, again, if you went, these are gentle things. You go to a party, and I was, I was in band, so all the band people hung out with each other. But you go to a party, and then usually the parents, one of the parents would say, oh, hi, Mark, are you Japanese or Chinese? And then you go, I'm Japanese, and they'll say something like, oh, I just love Japanese food. And then, you're, you know, you're going like, Okay, <laughs> just trying oh, to make. It, wow. I mean, they're, but they're trying to be nice. Yeah. But if you were, if you and I walk into a party, I, the the mother would not say, "Oh, Rob, you must be German or or, or French or something like that," right? <laughs> so you kind of get used to that, and you just kind of go, "Okay, well, they're just they're just trying to be nice." But you know, it wasn't in, in Marin County again. It wasn't overt racism, but you get, you still get little things like Ching Chong Chinaman and and uh, you know whatever was going on at the time. I think I think more importantly that what I told you in the little bio thing is though again growing up Asian in a mostly white community is that I'm older than you are but you know Jerry Lewis used to make all these funny comedy films but if you go back to the '60s they yeah. did all kinds of caricatures of, of you know buck teeth and you know glasses and all this and then we watched Breakfast at Tiffany's and I just, you know Mark it's funny you say that and you brought that up when you wrote to me. Um, I Breakfast at Tiffany's was on, or no, I I was watching the um, a documentary on Bruce Lee, and they showed all these clips of those awful Asian stereotypes, and that's in in a scene from Breakfast at Tiffany's, and I was, I mean, it was it blew my mind, and that was all folks saw. Right, and people see at that time, and then remember Bonanza, Hop Singh was like a little cook. And he was a laughable character. He's kind of cute, but he's, he's again, it's diminishing right. the role of the Asians. But we had to watch that, and we'd be embarrassed seeing that. We would slither in our seats. But again, it's like in the larger context of, 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 of consciousness for, for white people is that we, we were not meant to feel that we were as good as whites. And, and the movies, you know, extend that kind of stereotype. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I can look at it now, but I just thought, yeah, we would just slither and we'd, we'd be ashamed and we wished that we weren't Asian because uh, because what, what we saw, what we saw depicted. Um, but again, it's one of those things where uh, I suppose you could say, well, maybe Italians were always portrayed as mobsters and 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 Irish were like the drunken cop. Yeah. I'm sure there are other stereotypes out there. And then I'm sure that if you ask uh, Jewish people, uh, whatever, ways they may have been stereotyped or, or, or you know, fit into a category of, of something negative. But you're always aware of that level of identity. And I remember you saying, you know, you, you go into a, a room or... A, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, you, and, the, and one of the things you do, you start looking around, right? You look, you look around, you kind of go, okay, I'm the, I'm the only person of color here. And and then you, you're just a little bit on alert because you're ready for that question, right? It might come. And then interestingly, when I joined the um, Interfaith Council, I was having dinner at our Paul Ritchie, I was sitting with Khadija, you know Khadija. Yes, sure, of the Islamic and, Center, yeah. And, and, I, and we, the conversation came up and she's like 30 something years younger than me. And she goes to Tam High School and, and we, somehow it came up and she goes, she does the same thing. She does the minority suite. She'll go into a room, because she obviously looks like a person of color. But, but, we, but we sort of laughed at it because they said, oh my God, even years later, we still do that. Um, the but minority sweep. Yeah, that's what you called it. Yeah. 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 I, and then, you know, when I go, I used to go to these spirit rock retreats, and my wife, who's white, would say, she goes like this, how many people of color were there? And I'm going, well, out of 100, 
about six. Then she goes, really? I said, I said, Kate, it's, it's Marin County, you know, it's just, it's just the way it is. Yeah. And it's just, it's a, it's a non-issue after that. But I can, we can take that conversation further, but. Yeah, <clears throat> but it's, but it, in a way it's not a non-issue because I think Marin, um, maybe like other places in, in different forms has, um, has uh, a double identity or a, sh a shadow side. I mean, it, we, it gets held up all the time. It's really this progressive and open and right. welcoming culture, but that's right. not the experience I hear from some people. Right. As, as we know from our friend Ashley, who was uh, the uh, theological student, and, and she had a very bad incident happening in San Anselmo. And that's another story. Say more about that. Well, she's an African African American woman, and I, I remember I quietly asked her. I said, "Hey, Ashley, how's how's living?" Oh, in Ashley, yes. Remember Ashley? Yeah. And again, sometimes it helps to be a non-white person, but she looks around and she goes, "This is the most racist place I've ever lived." And I'm going, "Really?" Wow. Sam, and she proceeded to tell me that she was being followed when she was shopping somewhere. I mean, little things. She's walking down the street, and some woman on the on the same side of the street walks to the other side of the street. You know, again, it's like, I have to believe that this is her reality. And the yeah. only way to really know this would be like, if you could actually plant, transplant your brain into the body of a tall black man, right? Yeah. Or, or a woman and see how the world is looking at you. And I, I've heard that, a version of that story from more than one person of color from the seminary. And I remember one of the, one of the professors, uh, African-American woman was talking about uh, Ross as a sundown town Meaning, if you're not if you're not white, uh, and you're in Ross, uh, you better be at the bus stop or on your way uh, by sundown, because it's likely you're hired help. And if you're not, people are going to stop you and wonder what you're doing there. And that, I mean, blew my white mind. Just blew my mind. Yeah, a lot of us just kind of go, yeah, exactly. Next, <laughs> and then I'm not lying. I'm just sort of saying it. it Things don't surprise me anymore. Yeah, it's even more surprising when I when I see the naivety of some people saying, "Oh no, Marin County is very progressive." I'm just like, I'll just go, okay, you know, but I don't get angry because that serves no purpose. But that's for the part of going like, well, you know, you got a lot to learn, or you don't have to learn, right? And I think there's a lot of people that don't feel like they need to think differently. Yeah. Whereas I think with our group and our interfaith council because of the diversity, we have to be of the mindset to kind of go, you know, there's other ways of thinking about the world. There's different lenses. It's Jewish lenses, Muslim lenses, right? There's, so we, but we have that ability to say we can step out of this box here. But I think there's plenty of people out there that say they don't need to, to let, step outside of their box. Well, and the way, the way our community is set up, it's easy to go through your world and not run into those folks because we have a pretty segregated county. And so it's... Yeah easy to to keep to your own it's interesting that you keep bringing up the interfaith council as an avenue for this which i agree uh because religion sometimes and some religion has been uh the, the key sort of offender in in keeping people uh, in their own enclave or in their their own sense of superiority not all traditions but some uh -huh. so i love the notion that religion could actually be the vessel to understanding the other rather than judging yeah, I, well, I think it comes from the, the uh, who's teaching, the ministers. I think if you have a progressive rabbi and a progressive uh, Presbyterian minister speaking on, I think it was um, Christ Presbyterian Church, my wife's church in Terra Linda, and Linda 
was doing a sermon, I thought, wow, she was talking about impermanence, you know, which is a Buddhist concept. I was going, she was doing like a little bit of an interface spin there. And I just thought, that's how you get out of a boxed way of thinking. You get people kind of curious, and maybe you start getting sermons that are a little bit unusual, but they, but they, they, you know, they, you get the congregants to think that there's other ways of thinking besides maybe what you've heard in the last 30 years. Yeah. So what do you think, you, you as someone who's really taken this curiosity approach to spirituality as well as other aspects of your life, what, what is the gift of religion, the potential gift of religion to us today? <laughs> Thanks for the warning for that one. You said you had till 4.30. It, I mean, it's only 1.30. <laughs> What's the potential gift? Um, you know, again, <laughs> I love that smile, Rob. I can only speak for myself. Of course. And as I told you, you know, when I was a teenager, I, I was looking at the ways that people were in the world. And it seemed like the model was, the Western model is go to school, go to school, get a degree, get a good paying job, buy a house, get stuff, get promoted, make more stuff, make more money, you know, perpetuate that whole thing, buy more stuff, get kids, send them to good schools, you know, that whole thing. And I thought, you know, there might be another way to go through life than that. And, and so, to, to, I guess to answer your question, I think there is, uh, there's wisdom in all the teachings. And I think that if you are uh, serious about looking at the teachings, you can take the wisdoms of the teachings, have that in the background of your mind, and have that be your spiritual anchor about how, how, you, make, how you make every decision going through life. Uh, here's a small example. So, so one of my friends, I really like it, Rudolf Shalom. Uh, he was a lawyer, and he was talking to one of his clients, and he said, okay, as a lawyer, here's what you can do. Blah, 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 and it'll all be legal. He goes, but now I'm talking to you as a Jew. What do you think is the right thing to do and the right decision to be making right now? And, and so I, I, for me, as, 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 a, as a Buddhist, primarily, is that it's not about a question of like, oh, wow, you go to you know, 10 retreats a year and you meditate for 16 hours in the lotus position. You know, it's really, that's, that's fine. You know, and meditation has, its, has, its, has a lot of benefits. But really what I think the, the core of this, and I've talked to old Buddhist practitioners that say, you know, as older I get, cushion time, you know, sitting on the cushion. Cushion time is less important than what I am doing every moment. So every moment of your life, you know, are you able to be like this? Are you able to be mindful of going, uh-oh, I'm being prejudiced right now. I'm being judgmental. Someone zooms by and I'm going, whoa. And so instead of being judgmental and saying, you stupid, whatever, expletive, you might be able to make a choice and kind of go, whoa, boy, that person's in a hurry. I hope they're not rushing out to the hospital. I hope they're not in some kind of pain, right? So, so what you're doing with, with Buddhist practice is watching how you're reacting and responding to people. And then is my mind open and clear? Am I judging this person? If you're mindful, you're okay. Here's this big, tall, black guy. Am I gonna? Am I coming up with some ideas? Or here's some, here's some homeless person. Am I now drawing a whole story about that person? And I, have, I know nothing about the background of that homeless person and how they got there. So to begin answer your question. I I believe, and I don't I don't know how other people practice. I think if you call yourself a Christian. It should be something that you're doing all the time. It's not like you go, I go to church every Sunday. 
Right. I know, I know all the hymns. I know that. I donate thousands, right, to the building fund and all this. But then the next day you're out and you're yelling at somebody. I mean, to me, if you're going to be a Christian, you should be, you should be acting as a Christian in almost every aspect of your life. And then it's, a very people, practical, it's a very practical way to think of, about religion. And, and I know Christianity, one of its um, pitfalls is that we get stuck in our head. And it's all about ideas and accepting certain uh, um, sort of theological claims, which may or may not have any bearing on your life. But what you're reminding us, no, all of this exists to shape the way we show up in the world. Right? I mean, other, otherwise, what's the point? I think for Christians, uh, at times, the point has been to escape this world. But I think that misses the point. Well, you're, make, you're making a good point. And once we're having to be an argument about heaven and hell. Right. And, and my wife was, I forgot how the story was, but she said, you know, if you're, if you're in a really bad situation, you're poor and you've got health problems and you're in a third world country, some religion says that there's this heavenly place that you're going to go after you die. It gives you hope. But if you're comfortable and, well, theoretically comfortable, you might, your mind might be crazy, but if you're comfortably well off in Marin, you can maybe have an intellectual argument about heaven and hell. So I would never say that that's, that's a bad narrative. Right. That, that particular narrative may really work well in, in, in a poor third world country. But, and, and when you're in a place like Marin, as you know, many people say, well, I'm, uh, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual, right? That's the, whole, that's the whole thing you hear a lot. Or I've heard people disparage Christians, and I actually come to the defense of Christians saying, you know, when I went down, I did a medical mission down in Guatemala with a bunch of uh, crazy Texans. And, they were, and they, were, they were mostly kind of evangelical Christians. They were very nice. Most of them were open to my ultimate pathway called Buddhism. But there were a couple that would not want to talk about it. But they said, you know, Mark, I love being with you. And uh, you really helped out team. And I know I'll see you in heaven. And I went, got it. In other words, I'll, you know, I'll find the light, Rob, right? And, wow. and then I'll find my salvation in Christianity. Right. And I know, so I know that narrative, but it's okay. And then others would say, that would insult me. And I went, no, it's, it's okay. Like, you know, one of these gals said, Mark, I prayed for you yesterday. Went, well, thank you, Shirley. Because I had a bunch of little kids. And I was really freaked out. You're doing all these little kids with antiquated equipment. And she says, I'll pray for you, Mark. And someone said, that's so arrogant. And I said, no, they meant well. From her heart, that's what she does. She prays for people. She prays for me that my, my little kids will all do well during their surgeries. Yeah. So, that, so that's respecting other people's lenses. Well, that, you know, when I hear you talk, it reminds me of the way you spoke about the way your family dealt with things that were totally unjust or and unfair. Oh, it's yeah, this sort yeah. of overwhelming, gracious, uh, gracious, granting people all this space uh, and, and assuming they're doing they're doing the best they can and giving them the I guess the most generous reading of their behavior. Yeah, but in, but to be in that place, you have to have done enough of your self work yes. to not let that throw you off. And and I, years ago, I would always go to the evangelical church with my sister, and my sister Kay's wife and uh, Kay's um, sister in Minnesota and her husband used to go to this evangelical church. And when we'd visit them in, in Minneapolis, I would go to their church. And Kay wouldn't go. It was too, too, it's too weird for her. And I said, Kay, if you don't go to these kind of churches, 
you don't you don't hear like the message that they speak, you know, how they how they're teaching Christianity. And I remember one of the people parishioners was almost arguing with me because they were, they were saying, "You don't believe in heaven and hell," and I didn't want to I didn't want to be dishonest. And I said I said, "I'm still thinking about it, Rob. I'm not really certain." If, and he goes, "Well, there is a heaven and hell." And I went, "Okay." And then and and I and I realized that that to be in a space to honor that with them rather than have an argument, um, you have to be in a strong space. And and so for me. I actually go to compassion because I'm looking at these people and going, wow, your, your Christian world is so boxed by these extremes. You know, you're either with us or against us. And really baby Bush said that once, right? You're either good or evil. And the, and the, the Buddhist mind doesn't say that these, they're, they're like, there's a whole bunch of gray in between. Right. So when they, so when I meet these Christians that have these defined boxes of way to, you know, either you're this camp or you're wrong. I'll just go, okay, well, you got a lot of suffering going on because then you're going through the world going they're either in the right club or they're all like evil people that are going to go to hell. And I'm thinking, I wouldn't, I don't want to go through life that way. That's, that's a lot of suffering. That's a lot of judgment. And judgment is a lot of, it's a really good one to kind of get rid of. At least. Well, yeah, that's what I was going to ask is what is it that enables you to go into that space and, and not lose yourself and not give in to, I don't know, some, conflict that you mentioned compassion non-judgment are those are those tools that people watching right now can grab on to and, and and use them to carry them into spaces they wouldn't otherwise enter yeah i i would say so again you know, i wouldn't i don't know if i'd be able to tell you this maybe 20 years ago but i would say because i don't want to i don't be i don't want to be like saying buddhism is great but over many many years of study because it's a combination of sitting on the cushion as well as doing the academic studying, because it, Buddhism is the training of the mind. So I think with continued practice, and you have to practice this because you have to watch where your mind is going. If you, I, I feel like when you do the sitting practice, and I, when I go for these seven day, 10 day retreats, what happens is the chatter, the constant chatter that we have, goes away, goes away, goes away, goes away, and then it get, you get to this quiet space. Now, this is the fluffy part. My inherent belief is that everybody inherently has this ability to, have a, to live with an open heart and to be compassionate, to be kind and generous. You, can, you see when people, when there's a disaster and you see these people pushing cars out of a flooded plane, people of different color. I mean, I think that we're hardwired really to be kind and generous people. But what happens, all this other clutter gets, gets we get stuck in that stuff. And so for me, when you stop, and do retreat. And again, not everybody has time to do this. That gives me the chance to slow down that clutter. And I, I can feel the shift. When I come out of my retreats, my wife will say, boy, you're, you're different. <laughs> she'll say, she'll say like three weeks later, she goes, you're still shifted. Like things don't seem, things don't uh, shake me. I feel like I'm grounded, but it almost feels like my heart is open to just be always thinking, how can I be of help? And so like the Dalai Lama said, you know, there's real easy to be, you know. Yeah. Here's the key. Be kind. If you can't be kind, try not to create suffering in others through wow. your words, thoughts, and actions. Now think how think how it's a basic, simple thing to go through life. Before you blurt out something, think about how it may come out. Will this be hurtful to someone? Before you do some action, what are the, what might be the consequences? So try not to create suffering in others. And then if you can be kind. 
that you, you've already sort of led me to, to part of the answer, I think, of my last question to you, which will be, I mean, you've mentioned before that um, you're not surprised by things, by a lot of things, uh, prejudices, experiences of inequality that we have in, in a place such as Bren and elsewhere. And yet I don't see you as a cynical person. I see you I'm maybe even as a hopeful person. And I'm wondering where that comes from. And I think maybe part of the answer is what you just said, these sort of practices that do give us all the capacity to show up with our kind selves. Um, you may disagree, but that, that's a bit of what I'm hearing in you. Where else do you, if you do in fact find hope, where do you find it for us right now? Well, you know, I, I'm not trying to pretend I'm not cynical because I, I really, I, I really minimize watching the news, and I, and I have to be honest with you, I can't. I, I watch this person that's called the president of the United States, and it just really breaks my heart. And and I and I would say that for me, a lot of people are angry, you know. And for me, I would say my response is, is sadness because I, I look at I look at what goes on. And I'm thinking. This president could be doing other than what he's doing. He could be unifying people and, and, and giving comfort to people that are grieving. So I am cynical because I'm, you know, I'm also thinking that there's these huge stock market gyrations and all kinds of really wealthy people are benefiting from this particular president. Um, so you can't be naive about the world, but but staying in that space of cynicism, negativity is also not, not going to help. Um, I think I forgot the original question, but I guess no. I would where say you, where you find where you find the hope. I, well, you... I think I think what it is is being with um, again. I have to say back to their interfaith council. Being when I when I'm with my uh, Torah study friends at, at Modef Shalom, and when I'm with the interfaith council, when I do even just like a little morning sit with Sylvia Borstein or, or Donna over at Spirit Rock, you know, the, their messages are always hopeful. I think realistic, but hopeful, and you have to work at it. I mean, you really have to, you have to really find yourself going down a negative space and kind of go, okay, I, I'm not going to go there. And so I purposely, I, I don't, I, I don't think, I can't remember the last time I watched CNN News because I've just found that, 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 that'll also pull you into this, this whole head spin of, of uh, analyzing things too much and, and really getting away from where we need to be right here, which is ourselves. And I kind of getting, I'm getting time zone here, but, um, like right now, um, we're talking about how do we respond to the, the killing, Mr. Floyd, right? And there's a whole, you know, people, some people, some people are smashing up buildings and they're marching. And, and so we were talking, we had a little subgroup committee of the, of the council meet the other day. And I think we sort of concluded that everyone's response is different. So we all have to individually just, first of all, look how we're responding inside to see what work that we have to do. And I think if you're a wise white person, you might go, hmm, you know, maybe the whole thing about white privilege, maybe, maybe I should look into that. And maybe that's time for me to grow. And then I'll go, and maybe not. Maybe, and it's like, it's not for me to tell you that you should do that. But at least the wisdom of my friends would say, first, I got to look inside what's happening in here. Then after maybe I've heard, I can hear what's happening here, then find Rob and, and, Stephanie and so on, so on, so on, and sort of have another discussion here, and then maybe with 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 a um, with active listening, then come to what in the noble Buddhist noble path, come to wise action, do something, 
but do it with some wisdom in your actions. But if it means to march, then march. Peaceably march. Don't smash up things. But again, everyone's everyone's path. Some people say violence is the way uh, we're going to get our voices heard. Um, so I would say, yeah, be, look, be careful with the company you hang out with, and let them inspire you to to rise to higher higher level. Well, thank you for the way you've been our company through this hour, yeah. but also through so many of the, the interfaith gatherings. And uh, I, I hope this conversation invites other people to join in that because you're right. I mean, when you surround yourselves with those kinds of folks, we can really grow in a way that's meaningful. So yes. thank you for the way you've been with us today and for the person you are and for sharing your story with us. That's a sacred offering. Okay. Thank you, Ron. All right. Take care, Mark.